This episode of Greater Than Code is brought to you by Atlas Authority. Atlas Authority helps organizations manage and scale their Atlassian stack. With expertise in Jira, Confluence, Bitbucket, and other software development tools, Atlas Authority offers consulting, training, licensing, and managed hosting services. Visit atlasauthority.com GTC to find out more and learn why organizations trust Atlas Authority to implement, support, and maintain their critical Atlassian applications. Welcome to episode 135 of Greater Than Code. I'm Artie Starr and here with my fabulous co-host, Rain Hendricks. And I am here with our brand new co-host and my friend, Shante Thurmond. Hello. And I am here with our guest, Saran Yibarek. Hi, Saran. Hey, how's it going? Great. Nice to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. So I have the great honor of being able to introduce you officially uh, Saran Yabarg is the CEO and founder of Code Newbie, the most supportive community of programmers and people learning to code. She's also a developer, speaker, and podcaster, and has been to the show. Welcome back. Thanks so much. Yeah, great to be back. So the first question that we like to ask everybody is, uh, what's your superpower and how did you acquire it? Yeah, that question is is tough. I don't know if I feel like I have any superpowers. Um, I feel like I have a lot of skills, but superpowers is kind of tough. I guess my my superpower, if I had to pick one, is being able to figure out what people need and just being able to kind of read people. I noticed this a few times where I'll just kind of like look at someone and kind of based on what they say and what they react, kind of get to see emotions and things that maybe they didn't mean to express and kind of getting a read on people and getting a sense of their motivations. I think that's probably one of my uh, one of my superpowers. That's a good one, I'd say. Yeah, it comes in handy. <laughs> <laughs> How do you acquire it? Through a lot of practice, I guess, just being, you know, just good growing up and feeling like, you know, it's always handy to kind of read the room and read people's expressions and emotions. Um, and also I was a psychology major, so I'm sure that mm. played a role in it as well. So yeah. Yeah, I would guess so. Yeah. Saran, how have you been, what have you been up to since we talked last? Sure. Um, so right now, one of my big focuses is Codeland. Um, that's our annual conference that we do at Code Newbie. It's July 22nd in New York City. And it's awesome. And I'm super excited about it. So uh, we are, at the time of this recording, about a month and a half away. Um, and so that's what I've been working on, just making sure it's a really great experience for people and making sure that folks get a lot from it, um, from their, uh, from making sure they're like well-fed to just being taken care of, to learning and getting uh, all the education and inspiration that they can. So that's what I've been up to. So for those of you who don't know, Saran was our 26th guest, and this is now episode 135. Wow, congratulations to you all. Yeah, thank you. So this has been, uh, we last talked to you a little over two years ago, and you have been doing stuff, and it's pretty cool. So this conference, uh, I checked it out, and you do a lot of cool things. You have free childcare. Yeah, Super pumped to offer free on-site childcare this year. Um, it's something that I've wanted to do last year, and just the venue we weren't able, like, like legally, we weren't able to do it. Um, and we did have like a childcare fund to um, subsidize childcare for folks who needed it. Uh, but this year we get to have complimentary on-site childcare. We have certified childcare givers, and we have a room, and we have some space, and it's going to be a really good time. That is amazing. Yeah, really, really excited to have it. As somebody who has uh, children and as somebody who focuses strongly on diversity, equity, and inclusion and access, 
I think that is huge. So I just want to say shout out and kudos to you. That's Thank you. pretty unique. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and I would love to just kind of get your opinion on this. Have you found that, um, that as you kind of traverse the industry that this is a rarity and what you're doing isn't normal for folks, right? This is probably some of the issues with attending these conferences. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it is becoming more normal. It's kind of like the way code of conducts were, you know, at the beginning, they were for some reason, um, controversial, which is like, does make sense to me. Um, but for some reason, they were kind of like, what is this thing? And then slowly, people started um, doing it more and more. And some of the, you know, the more, I like to say, inclusive, inclusion focused conferences started adopting it. And then soon it kind of spread and became kind of expected at this point. I think just about everyone has some type of code of conduct. And I hope child care, you know, ends up that way where maybe a few people are doing it and then slowly it kind of grows and catches on. And hopefully it'll get to a point where it's expected. Um, it's totally normal. So I think we're maybe a third of the way there at this point. And, you know, for us, especially, you know, we like to say that we are super inclusive and we have a really diverse um, speaker lineup and diverse attendees. And we have folks from all over different backgrounds attending and, it, you know, and we're very proud of that fact. And if we can't make it a little bit easier for parents to attend, then I feel like we haven't fully lived up to our promise of inclusion, you know? And so this is our way of, um, of really, you know, putting our money where our mouth is and saying like, we're going to, we're going to pay for someone to, you know, take care of your babies so that we can make it a little bit easier for you all to come. I like it. Again, kudos to you and something that we don't get to see enough of. I'm hoping that people will uh, take this as a call to action and yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, to be fair, like, I definitely felt pressure as well. You know, I look around at some of these conferences that I really look up to, and I'm thinking, man, if they're doing it, like, I got to figure this out, you know, so there's like mm -hmm. a really positive social pressure there, too. So, you know, if we do it, hopefully, we'll pressure other people. And, you know, we'll all kind of get to this place together. How would you say in terms of this year versus last year and your expected um, attendees, has this new feature and complimentary service enhanced the, the early enrollment or commitment to attending the conference? We've definitely had some parents uh, list that they need the childcare and that they're going to sign up for it, which is really nice to see. I think we're still a little bit early in terms of figuring out what the final count is going to be and how many different folks are going to actually need it and take advantage of it. But, you know, whether or not people take advantage of it, it's important, you know, for us to know that we have it, you know, and to, yes. for people to know that it's available regardless of whether or not people actually use it. We've definitely gotten some really positive feedback from parents who said, like, you know, thank you for offering this um, and just gotten a really positive reaction from it. So, um, yeah, we'll see how many people take advantage of it. But even if no one does, I think it was totally worth doing. Yes, I would love to hear how that ends up. And you can fill us in because I think, yep. that you know, again, it, it, it creates a call to action. And just the more transparency we can have around that, I think the better. One of the mm -hmm. questions I have that just came to my mind as you were talking is, sure, I know that we um, interviewed you almost two years ago, but mm -hmm. for folks who are just chiming in and listening for the first time, and they maybe this is the first time that they've heard your name or uh, Code Newbies, could you tell us a little bit about Code Newbies? Sure. So we are, as you mentioned, the most supportive community of programmers and people learning to code. So we are all about creating content for folks who are on their coding journey. So we produce uh, Codeland, the conference I've been talking about, and then we also produce two podcasts. We produce the BCS podcast, which is all about teaching computer science topics in short 20-minute episodes. It's with myself and my amazing co-host, Fidehi Joshi. And uh, it's a really fun show where if you have always wanted to learn computer science and kind of never quite got there... Or if you are learning computer science and need kind of some supplementary help, then this show is for you. 
And then we also have the Code Newbie podcast, which interviews people on many different parts of their coding journey. We have folks who are just getting started. We have folks who are um, very experienced. We interviewed like the CTO of Microsoft, which is awesome. It's an opportunity to dig into people's stories and hear about um, how they got into code, how they moved about in their career, and lessons and, and, and thoughts that they can share with our community. So yeah, that's what we do. Okay. By definition, what would you consider a newbie? Somebody that's like one year in or two years in? Yeah, it's interesting because at first, when we first first started, newbie meant people who were actively learning to code who hadn't quite gotten that first job, that first internship. So anyone who was pre-employed, I guess, okay. is, is the way we looked at it. But there came this kind of like saying in our community that everyone is a newbie. And we had all these experienced folks come on and say like, hey, I consider myself a newbie because I have to learn a new language like all the time. And I have to learn a new tool every, you know, all the time. So even if I'm not new to coding in general, I'm new to something within coding. So I think since then, the definition of newbie has expanded to people who are just generally learning and who get to a moment in their journey where they are new to something, which happens fairly often in the coding world. A brilliant way to look at it too. Yeah, yeah. That that wasn't me. That came from the community. But yeah, the community is pretty awesome. And you've been doing this for a while now. So if you had to say like, more so the most salient point you've learned thus far in the journey. What would that be? Being once a coding a coding newbie yourself and now you're you're moving on to doing so many cool things in terms of evolving your efforts. Like you have two podcasts and you have a conference and it seems like your community's growing. So what what have you learned looking back? That's a good question. I think I've learned that it is important to be consistent. And I think this is true no matter what, no matter kind of like what you're doing, what you're about. But I think that you really have to be super, super consistent um, with all of your efforts, whether you're doing community work, whether you're doing, you know, a personal project, whether you're doing a, a project at work, like nothing gets built, you know, overnight. It really does take a while and it takes a lot of commitment. And for a while, no one will care what you're doing. You know, if you think about starting any type of project, unless you have like some huge following at the beginning stages, no one's going to care and no one's going to look at what you're doing and really see your vision for it. And it takes, you know, persistence and it takes kind of you believing in yourself, even when you're not getting that external validation to uh, do something really great. So yeah, just, just keep on going. That's good. Good advice. I hope folks are listening. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this everyone is a newbie kind of mindset and the gear shift that we kind of make when we go into like newbie mode and what happens to us in terms of like how we anchor in ourselves, being an expert at being a newbie, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. essentially I'm thinking about what expertise in newbieism might look like. It seems like we might have someone here with us today that would know what an expert newbie would mean. <laughs> So that seems like a great question. What is being expert at being a newbie? How would you describe that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that it's a couple things. I think that it is one being comfortable being in a state of frustration. <laughs> um, there's this really great study that talks about the difference between folks who finish a computer science degree and folks who started and ended up quitting. And the key differentiator between the two groups is that the people who finished the degree were much more comfortable being in a state of confusion, that they knew that 
things weren't going to make sense for a while. And they were, they were kind of okay with that. Um, which by the way, is something I'm terrible at. I need things to make sense immediately. But that really stuck with me. I've, you know, learning to code, so much of it is getting stuck on a problem, you know, encountering a bug that just doesn't make any sense. And you're pushing and squeezing and trying and bending and nothing seems to like to come together. And so just being comfortable in that place where nothing is really making sense and nothing's kind of adding up is really, really important to being an expert newbie. I think the other thing is realizing that at the end of the day, I want to say almost all problems in coding are solvable. You know, if you think about other industries, like if you think about English, right, or like writing, what is the perfect essay? Like that's kind of this subjective, really, this very subjective thing that, you know, you're kind of always in search of like making your essay really, really good and making it even stronger and better. If you think about journalism, you're seeking truth, but like, what is truth? Like, is that even a thing that is attainable? If you think about life sciences, it's about studying nature all around us, which frankly, we may never fully understand. We keep learning, we keep, you know, theorizing and trying to figure it out, but we may never understand it. But when it comes to code, people made code. We literally made it, we created it. So it is solvable. When we get stuck on something, it is figure outable. You know, it's not going to be this mystery that you'll never ever, that there's no chance of, you know, reaching. It's not unattainable. It is solvable. And so I think that keeping that in mind, whenever we get frustrated, thinking of it like another human being made this. If another human being made this, then all humans have the ability or have the potential of figuring it out. And so this state is a temporary state and your goal is doable. I think that's super, super important to keep in mind. And I'd say the last thing is that um, just generally patience, patience with yourself, making sure to keep your frustrations external, you know, making sure that we don't take in that frustration and go, oh, this sucks, therefore I suck. I think it's really easy to get to that conclusion where you internalize your failures. And so making sure you don't do that and making sure you're able to kind of distance who you are from your work and the things you produce is really important. All problems in coding are solvable. I don't think I've ever heard anyone articulate that in, in those words. That's one of those statements that you end up shifting to a place of taking by faith of like, I have faith in my abilities that if I just keep at it as a human being, that humans made code. And so these problems are solvable. And if I just, you know, am okay, <laughs> if I just be okay, just keep at it. I can have faith in my own abilities to... Mm -hmm. uh, there will be light somewhere at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. You, you nailed it. Like there is light. It may be very faint. It may be hard to see, but it is there. And, it, it, you know, you will get through that tunnel for sure. Beautiful. It's time once again for me to quote Virginia said here. <laughs> she said, do you know what makes it possible for me to trust the unknown? It's because I've got eyes, ears, skin. I can talk, I can move, I can feel, and I can think. And that's not going to change when I go into a new context. I've got that, and I give myself permission to say all my real yeses and nos because I've got all of those other possibilities, and then I can move anywhere. Why not? Hmm. I like that. So we bring with us the, the tools. We are already equipped with the tools we need to move into yep. new confusing situations and be successful. Exactly. Yeah, love that. So you've been doing a lot of teaching, or at least involved in a community that does a lot of teaching. What have you learned about teaching? Um, I've learned that teaching is really just storytelling in disguise. It is all about starting from a place where you can both agree, starting ideally at the beginning of something, kind of maybe teasing people, getting them an idea of what they're going to end up, where they're going to end up where we're going and then taking them on that journey step by step and kind of going through every single step, making sure to go through like to build it up, you get to some point of a, of a climax. And then there's the, 
I forgot what it, what the, how it works in storytelling. There's like, what is it? The, the falling climax or something, the falling, whatever. And then you kind of get to the end of things and just going through that step, the beginning, middle and end. That's really what teaching is all about and making sure there's a main character, making sure there's a problem to solve. There's an adventure to be had. If we frame teaching opportunities as storytelling opportunities, I think we can all be better teachers. So there's a, a theory of learning called conversation theory, which is the idea mm. that learning and teaching happens as a conversation between two, I would say people, but that's simplifying it. It's between two cognitive entities. It's between two thinking things. And that can be within yourself. But when it's between two people, you have to have a conversation and come to a point of agreement. You have to build yes. a bridge with that person. Mm -hmm. So it's a form of constructivism. Teaching isn't about taking some piece of knowledge out of my head and putting into yours. It's about building that knowledge from where the, the learner is and building them up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that as a conversation. Yeah, because you're kind of going back and forth. You have to be able to follow the conversation, right? You don't just like start at the end and then, you know, go back to the middle and then, you know, you just don't do that. You don't bounce around a conversation. You have to build it together. Yeah, I love that. And not only that, because all binaries have to be constructed, the teacher-learner binary has to be deconstructed. Teachers have to learn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Teachers yep. have to learn about the, the people they're teaching. They have to learn how their mind works, what they think about things, what models they're using to construct the world. They have to learn all these things so they can be effective teachers. Yes, absolutely. The thing that usually comes to my mind too, just my own experiences, is that I think, you know, that when I was younger and more naive, I thought that the teacher knew all. And I realize now as I've grown to be more wise and had more life experience that the teacher, but the best teachers are the ones who believe they know nothing and that they are constantly asking questions. And I'm, I've seen that you all are really great about activating conversation online. One of the things that I paid attention to and noticed right away is that you're constantly um, activating that within not only yourself and those who are helping you, I guess, manage your, your social media. Could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, maybe the ethos or the belief that you have at Code Newbie and beyond when it comes to being a learner and a teacher, you know, formally or informally? There's a couple things. One is that we really look to the community to teach and to share and kind of pitch in. So when someone tweets at us and says, you know, hey, I'm just stuck on a problem. Can you help me? We don't directly answer those tweets. We encourage them to tweet it to tweet it um, at us, and then we'll retweet it on their behalf, and then we'll get the community involved. So that's been really huge, been really big, just the opportunity to say, hey, you know, we're going to give the community a chance to help out. We're going to give the community a chance to contribute and to really um, move this conversation along and to uh, help solve this problem. I think that's probably the biggest thing. And then I think the other thing is to make sure that you're helping the person where they are, you know, I think that's probably one of the biggest complaints about Stack Overflow is there's a lot of, you know, condescension sometimes. There's a lot of uh, dismissal of people's ideas and people's questions and kind of a lot of judgment. And so I think with the way we think about teaching and approaching that conversation is to say, hey, you know, I'm going to meet you where you are and I'm going to get on your level and see if I can kind of move you up and move you along towards the solution. So that idea of, you know, making sure to be not just patient, but just to understand the frustrations of that person, to understand that, hey, that person may not be as knowledgeable as you are, may not um, know as much or just be as well versed and to be patient and be and be kind to them. Mm -hmm. I think in, a, in an era where we really are, are aware that we have a fourth industrial revolution coming fast and furious and the digitalization and virtualization of all it's really exciting, you know, when you when you have this community and that we are deconstructing what we believe as or what we have believed historically to be education and learning. And just to see you take it to a new level 
and deliver online, I think it just makes me think, what is the future of learning? Mm. You know? and, huh. and one of the things I, I talk about a lot is, is what's the future of work? So just curious to know what you think that relationship is. So the, you know, the future of learning and therefore the future of work. There are tons of different ways to learn, which is amazing. There's so many more ways now than there were even five years ago. There's so many blog posts and people doing live streaming and people doing videos and people doing podcasts. And there's so many different ways to learn. I'm really curious and really excited to see where VR goes. So the Oculus Quest came out, uh, I think, at this at the time of this recording, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a week or two ago, uh, which is like a headset, a VR headset. It costs 400 bucks, which is very cheap for a VR headset. And it is portable, doesn't need a a computer or anything. And I'm really excited to see how VR becomes another type of content for people to learn. If you learn via video, if you learn via sound or audio, audio, if you learn via video, you know, via um, just written text, how do you learn with VR, I think is really right. interesting. I think that, you know, over time, it's only going to get cheaper and more accessible. It's already gone a lot cheaper just in the last couple of years. And so um, I'm really excited and interested to see where that takes us and how that opens up even new possibilities and even more possibilities in learning. And I think that also relates to work. I think that work is going to be increasingly remote. Um, I think we're already, you know, we're already on our way, well on our way to to, to being that and the expectation being that it's not just remote friendly, but remote first, remote central. And I think that VR is also going to play a role in that in, in the years coming. I think that it's going to be a really interesting tool to see, can I recreate an office environment with glasses? You know, can I create an environment where I feel comfortable working and I can build some of those social relationships by going to this virtual world and doing work there? So I think we're pretty far away from that one. I think it's going to take a while to have a headset you can wear for like eight hours straight, but I think we're going to get there eventually. So I'm really excited to see uh, where VR takes us. Ditto. All that you just said is sort of, you know, I, I share the same sentiments. So I'm, yeah. I'm excited too. and can't wait. And I think, uh, again, going back to the accessibility thing, right? I, I think it, VR is a great vehicle to help us get there quicker mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. For, for all. So curious if that comes up in the community, though. Do you see this kind of thread popping up for you all? Or, you know, um, is, it, is it something you'll be exploring at your conference? I don't think so. I think that it's still a little too early and it's still, frankly, a little too expensive, a little too financially inaccessible. And VR, like right now, is mostly seen as like a gaming tool more than an educational tool. I think it's going to take a while to be seen as a um, agnostic platform instead of being like another tool for gaming. So I think we're, we're a little far away from that. But um, hopefully one day, maybe we'll get some some code to be VR content. We'll be we'll be uh excitingly uh, waiting for that. So <laughs> let's post it, OK, yeah, we'll do insider. <laughs> Insider first knowledge when that happens. Deal. Deal. <laughs> There's a few things you said earlier that struck me, and I was taking notes in in um, chat because I wanted to ask you about this. But you mentioned this context of Stack Overflow having this judgy sort of cultural context, and contrasting that with this community oriented mentorship of retweeting people that need help. And I think about what you're talking about with meeting people where they are, being able to see there. And it seems like raising your hand has always been one of these hard things, whether it's in school and raising your hand and asking a question or whether, you know, you're learning and you're stuck in the software world (laughs) on some Mm -hmm. problem, being able to raise your hand and ask for help. And I was wondering if you could comment on the contrast between those two things and some of the things you see that hold people back from raising their hand 
and what kind of things that we can do that we can say to people that we can do to encourage that type of behavior? Yeah. So I think that what holds people back from raising their hand is just not feeling safe. I think that to be vulnerable, you have to feel safe. You have to feel like there is space for you to be vulnerable and that you're not going to be judged. You're not going to be dismissed. You're not going to be uh, you know, punished in some way, usually some emotional way for being vulnerable. So I think that the biggest thing is just not feeling like you're in a safe space where it is okay to be and you are free to be vulnerable and you're free to raise your hand. So I think that for us to create that environment, I think we have to demonstrate vulnerability. I think that we have to be really good at asking questions and we have to be really good at offering our own stories and sharing our own struggles. Because the moment I say, you know what, I really suck at this and I'm having a hard time, that immediately gives you permission to go, oh my God, I suck at this too. I'm also having a really hard time. So I think that going first, right? Saying like, I'm going to show my vulnerability. I'm going to raise my hand and I'm going to tell you and share with you what I'm struggling with, what I'm self-conscious about. And then using that as a way to help foster this community. And the moment you start doing that, the moment other people will be much more likely to raise their hand as well. I'm thinking about an experience I had in college where, where I remember some folks in the class that came up to me and said, thank you so much for all the questions you ask in class, because they're like all these things on yes, my mind that I wanted exactly. to know, but I didn't have the courage to raise my hand and ask the question. And that's yep. all I do is just sit there and I'm like, I don't get it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Yeah. You're, you're the star. You're, you're the, you're amazing. You're, you're the one that um, makes it so much easier for everyone else. Even if they don't speak up, even if they don't raise their hand, they feel like they still have a voice and they still have a presence in the room. So yeah, you're doing, you're doing the good work. You know, it's kind of awesome every time someone says, you're the star, because <laughs> mm-hmm. I just changed my name to Artie Star. So it's Oh, kind of, there you go. <laughs> see, it fits me. It fits me. <laughs> I think a lot about psychological safety and how to build it. And psychological safety is defined as the ability to take interpersonal risks. So it's literally the ability to do something that makes you vulnerable in a social situation, right? And what that enables is, you know, basically everything we're trying to do in terms of building collaborative friendly, kind communities. That's the bedrock for everything else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What do you do to try to make people feel safe to take these interpersonal risks? Yeah. So I think it goes back to showing our own vulnerability. So it's me saying, you know, I'm struggling with this and I am, you know, having a hard time with this and kind of putting myself out there, which is always risky too. You know, when you put yourself out there, it puts you in a situation where you might be punished or you might be judged. And, and, you know, that might be something that comes with some negative outcomes. But I think it's about putting your foot forward first and then seeing who um, is willing to join you. So it's about modeling those behaviors. Yep, exactly. And letting people see that, oh, that that wasn't so bad at all. That got a good response. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. Behavioral conditioning is very problematic, but I think it is useful to reinforce good behaviors with appreciation. I think when we see people saying, I don't know, we should say, oh, that's cool. Let's go find out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you nailed it. Anytime. Well, it's also like a great way to kind of deal with your own not knowing of things too, right? Instead of saying, oh, I don't know, it's I don't know, but I'm excited to learn with you, right? Or, oh, that thing didn't work. Oh, like, wow, this is, we're going to go on an adventure. So take an opportunity to take those moments of insecurity, those vulnerabilities, and kind of turning it on its head and turning it into this new thing that you're going to do together um, is a really great and, and helpful technique. So Benjamin Zanders, the uh, conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, he also does a lot of these like interpretation classes where he sits down with extremely good musicians and helps them be better. 
And he did one of these at like a TED Talk, I think. And it was really cool. One of the things he did is the musician made a mistake. And then at the end of the performance, he said, I noticed that you messed up that part there. And then when you did, you kind of went, uh, like you kind of closed off and went, uh, uh, I don't like it. What if instead of that, every time you made the mistake, you went, how fascinating. And you threw your arms <laughs> up. And I think about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I trick myself into being excited about bugs um, is by, you know, encountering something and going, wow, that totally didn't work the way I wanted to. Well, I wonder why. And, you know, and trying to like trick myself into, into not being angry and frustrated at things. So, yeah, I use that even when I'm just working by myself. Uh, really helpful to try and turn those negative moments into moments of learning and, and, and intentional learning is really, uh, it's been really helpful. So you mentioned um, being comfortable in uncertain or confusing situations. And it turns out that that is a skill that will be important for your whole career. There are whole industries like the resilience engineering community. One of their main focuses is on what the safety community calls being poised to adapt, which is building skills in people to prepare them to deal with unknown or confusing situations. Mm -hmm. So that is how you get resilience is you help people become more able to deal with those situations and do a better job of responding to those challenges. Mm -hmm. So these things that you're teaching these people, that the community is teaching these people about this, aren't just tools for beginners. Yeah, it's tools for everyone. I think everyone can learn from being a little bit more open, being a little bit more patient, and being a little bit more vulnerable. Yeah. And I'll take that and just say that I, that's where I like to focus on because I think that's what makes humans different than the software of the technology that you're building. It kind of reminds us to come backwards to this, to the human side of what we're even talking about, uh, greater than code, right? Would you say that that's something that you're trying to harness and really cultivate at Code Newbie? Was that intentional or unintentional? I think it's very intentional. I think that it is always our goal to create kind of this safe space and to create this environment where it is okay to ask questions. And the more we model that behavior, the more we enable other people and empower other people to do the same thing. So yeah, that was very much intentional. I wanted to make sure that this was the space for everyone to, to join in and feel like they could really be themselves. So yeah, that was on purpose. Did you build this space? And maybe you've answered this question in the past, but so forgive me if this is a repeat, but for me and for others who maybe, like I said, who are new to this conversation, did you build Code Newbie with that intention of saying, listen, there wasn't a space for me and there wasn't a community like the one I'm building, so I'm building it? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was me saying, you know, I had I had my own community of people who were learning to code and I got that through a boot camp. So I went to the Flatiron School and uh, one of the most valuable things I got from it was this community of people who were learning to code and who understood the ups and downs and the highs and the lows of that journey. And so in going through that process, I said to myself, it would be really great if you could get this type of community without paying tens of thousands of dollars to get it, right? Because bootcamp is, is pretty expensive. And so that's kind of where that came from. It came from this feeling that everyone should have a supportive community. Everyone should have a place where they can go, where they feel safe and they feel um, wanted and welcome and being able to design for the thing that I felt like was missing. Yeah. When you can basically take a, an issue and a problem that's been front and center in your own life and solve it for yourself and others, it's even it's so beautiful. Do you see that there's been a lot of folks who have then been inspired by your work and taken a page out of your book and and try to do the you know replicate it or to add on augment it in any way 
Yeah, well, I don't know if, you know, I was necessarily the inspiration for it, but I know that over the past couple of years, there have been a lot of other communities that have popped up, you know, who are doing similar works that are trying to provide safe spaces for people to learn. And they're all a little bit different, like Dev2 comes to mind. Um, they're more of a blogging platform, but there's still this idea of creating this really safe, really inclusive space for folks. Free Code Camp is another one that comes to mind. They're more about actively teaching you how to code, but still with this huge emphasis of community and kindness. And then there are the organizations that came before me, right? So like the Women Who Code, Girl Develop It. Um, there are lots of organizations that have been very kind and very uh, welcoming and inclusive that have been in the same spirit of what we're trying to do. Do you um, have formal or informal relationships with those organizations and try to do your best to kind of pool resources and, and help everyone? Yeah, I think that the way that's worked is mostly through just asking for advice. So me reaching out and saying, hey, we're doing this thing. Can you help out? Or, hey, I'm struggling with this thing. Can you give me some advice? Um, and vice versa, you know, then reaching out occasionally and saying, hey, we'd love to collaborate or we'd love to, um, you know, work on this problem together. So I think it kind of goes both ways. But I think it's more about the leaders of these groups coming together and making sure that we all support each other, given that we're doing a lot of the same work. Right. Yeah, there's enough problems to go around. So the, the more we can get, you know, inspiration and support from one another, the better. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I've heard quite often from folks and have pondered a lot is, you know, there's so many resources out here for people nowadays, oh, yeah. especially as we digitize everything. And it can be like almost drinking from a fire hose. You know, do you have any advice for people? code newbies out there that are listening, where can they go to kind of get a very grounded understanding of what's kind of going on in the community? And then maybe like, all right, here's where I'm going to go. If I pick one or two places to go, this would be a really good one. You can always plug yourself, but just curious, <laughs> what kind of advice would you give for code newbies out there? Well, actually, yeah, I think that there are so many places where you can learn to code. Um, obviously, go to Code Newbie, and you know, I'm sure we'll be able to help you out. Um, if you go to Dev2, they have tons of great resources on there. If you just go to medium.com, there's so many great uh, blog posts and articles where they round up a lot of resources. So I don't think that the finding resources is really the hard part. I think the hard part is sticking with resources. There's so many resources available that it's easy to hop around. We hear this all the time in our community of folks who say, you know, I started with this thing, and then I did it for like a week or two. And then I started on this new thing and then I did that for like a couple of weeks and then, oh man, this thing came out and I really wanted, you know, and there's this, um, there's this problem of just like shiny objects. I think mm -hmm. the harder part is sticking with something, even when it starts to get a little boring, maybe it starts to get a little tough, just going through it and finishing it anyway. I think that's the harder thing. So that's what I encourage people folks to do is it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter what the resource is. Just pick one, stick with it, see it all the way through and you'll make way more progress than if you jump around. I think that's a great example of what intentional learning is. Yeah. My experience with building these sort of high psychological safety communities is that they need trust. They're based on trust. And when you have the, this requirement that people trust each other, these communities become pretty vulnerable to bad actors because people who break that trust can really destroy the foundations of that community. And so my question for you is – First of all, do you agree with the, that characterization? And second of all, what do you do in your communities to deal with bad actors? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that for our community, people are really good at kind of self-moderating and moderating the community themselves. And frankly, we, we've been really lucky that we haven't really had many bad actor situations. I think we've had like maybe two that I can really think of. And when they happened, and it was like relatively minor incidents, but when they happened, 
the community kind of stood up for itself and they said, hey, we don't allow that here. We don't uh, agree with the way that you think. And this is, you know, not acceptable. And this is, you know, harassment or whatever it was. And so, um, frankly, I haven't really had to do very much. You know, it's basically them being able to to know who we are and who we aren't and being able to kind of rise up and challenge the, the person who was behaving in an inappropriate manner. So, yeah, we haven't really had to do very much. But, you know, we anticipate that, you know, we're not it's not always going to be that easy. And so we'll kind of deal with it when it gets there. But I think that it's just tough. It's always tough to kind of figure out what is the right way of solving a situation beyond just like kicking someone out? What is the goal and how do you approach that is is really tough. But fortunately, we haven't really had to deal with that yet. Why do you think that the community felt so empowered to take that on themselves? I think it comes back from modeling that behavior. I think that when you model that behavior, you not only teach people how to behave, but you also attract people who really want to behave that way. And so between those two things, you end up with a community that is very much in line with what you hope it is. That's very much in line with the mission of inclusion and being really kind to each other. And so, um, yeah, you end up with a really strong community of people who have very, who have the same values of things. So that's how you do that. The interesting thing for me is that the obvious bad actors, the harassers, are relatively easy to deal with. You go, oh, that's bad behavior. We want that to stop. But there are things that are sort of borderline that I think are much harder to deal with. I feel like you are actually doing a whole lot. You said the key here is everyone knowing who we are and who we aren't and having a community full of people where you've essentially modeled what the gravity, the home tree of this community is you've created clarity in terms of who we are and who we aren't, and then taken your ball of gravity and expanded that to a a group of people and the, the game mechanics. So if I think about just contrasting this with stack overflow, being seen in a peer mentorship community is being one of the people who isn't too afraid to raise their hand and being one of the people that jumps in and helps. So you create visibility and honor and a sense of arrow of of which way is up in terms of what is valued. And you reward those things through kind of the mechanics and the systems that are set up by creating a clear dynamic, a clear knowing who we are and who we aren't as a community. Versus if you look at the game on Stack Overflow, you're working in sort of a competitive context almost to be seen as the smart one. and that game is very different when you're essentially, okay, you're helping someone, but at the same time, you're in this mindset of competitiveness of, I want to be seen as the smart one. This is about seeing if I can come up with a cool, smart reply. Then as more and more negative competitive dynamics and energy kind of comes out and that gets more and more normalized, that tone sort of builds up in the conversation, but it's an artifact of the platform of the game of the the gravity that is built around it versus a fundamentally different kind of gravity. You basically instantiated a new kind of gravity and this is the home tree. I'm going to plant a flag in the ground. You know, this, this is where we stand. This is, these are the behaviors of who we are and who we want to be. And I want to make that super clear to everyone and attract all the people that want to believe the set of values and live in this world. And you instantiate that by being a star. So that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. I remember when Eugenia Chang was on, she talked about congressive and ingressive cultural patterns. So ingressive is a sort of 
competitive winner takes all hierarchical, you know, zero sum. If I win, you have to lose sort of an approach. And, a, and congressive is, is growth and learning and we all win together, you know, sort of approach. And it seems to me like what you're trying to do is build a congressive community. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, you win in our community by helping someone else and by uh, contributing to someone else's learning and someone else's success. Um, so that's what you're competing for if you're competing for anything. So when you win, basically everyone else wins. So yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that's a great definition of congressive. You know, my success is determined by my contributions to others. Yep, exactly. My success is exactly, you know, correlated and tied to and, you know, really goes back to like your success. So we have to be successful together in order for anyone to win. Saran, do you think that that would be indicative or reflective of, you know, being the fact that you are a female and at the helm of this or, you know, at the helm of uh, starting this community? Because I feel like that's more so a trait that I see in in women um, as we build community. I think that for me, it is maybe tied to that. I think more broadly, it's tied to just always feeling like the outsider. Um, You know, I'm a woman, I'm a person of color, I'm an immigrant, I'm Ethiopian. And so I think that there's a a huge um, just reality of intersectionality there that makes me almost always feel like I don't belong. Like there are rarely rooms that I walk in and I go like, yes, I'm meant to be here. You know, I always kind of feel like I stick out and not in a good way. And so I'm particularly sensitive to creating positive environments. I'm particularly, you know, sensitive to, and I think that's, you know, where my superpower comes in of like reading people and seeing like, are they comfortable? Do they want to speak up? Do they want to speak up? And they're just not saying, you know, like kind of reading people. I think where that, that comes in as well. Um, it's just me feeling like I don't really have a home base. And I don't really have a community and making sure that like, no one else feels that way. So I think that I'm a little bit more well-equipped, I guess, naturally to look out for those things and try to create those environments. Yeah, that's really interesting because when she originally came up with those terms, it was because she wanted to shed the association between those modes of being and gender roles. She didn't want caring for other people to be just a thing that women do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. You know, one, one of the things I, I'm really interested in is just how our intersectionality really shapes our life experiences and the things that we build, right? In, in this case, it's the community and, uh, and beyond, you know, you're, you're doing so much more. But I think that, you know, calling that out is, first of all, um, it's beautiful. And, and secondly, it gives space for others to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's something that you all talk about online and offline? a lot about is in your intersectionality and your identities? Hmm, I don't really know. I think that we generally talk about our backgrounds and we're very um, open and honest about talking about where we come from and why learning to, and just our coding journey and how it relates to it. I don't know if we explicitly talk about like, hey, I'm a woman of person of color, but we do talk about, you know, hey, I'm a mom and being a mother, you know, affects my journey in these three ways or hey, you know, I'm the only person in my company who's who's black. And so that's really frustrating for these reasons. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's always tied to something that we're struggling with or dealing with, or maybe something that we're celebrating when it comes to our coding journey. Um, but I don't know if we explicitly talk about it independently. I think it's always within that context of coding. Mm-hmm. If we think of coding, like if we liken it to something like art, is it hard to parse out and say that like your art is a reflection of you? And so your code is likely a reflection of you, right? I think that the way in which we would maybe code something on a, in terms of binary code would be likely what we've, the accumulation of what we learned and mm-hmm. how we interpret it, like the context, right? 
Mm-hmm. So just curious if you have any thoughts about, again, going back to like the future of work and, and intersectionality and, you know, the way in which we're going to build communities digitally and off, you know, offline and online. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with code being a reflection of you. I think it's a reflection of, well, I don't think it's a reflection at all. I think it's just literally what you produce. I think I liken it more to following a recipe or cooking a dish, right? Like if I make a bowl of pasta, I don't think the pasta reflects me. I think the pasta is just something that I've created. I think a distinction is really important because if we look at the code as a reflection of who we are, I think that it's very easy to get into that internalization of failure, right? If I code something that sucks, well, then I guess I suck too. You know, if I code something that isn't beautiful, then I'm not beautiful. Like, I think it's really easy to look at our work and identify it so closely to who we are that we end up beating ourselves up over things or, you know, maybe even worse, assuming that we can never get better, right? If we keep trying and it's not quite working out, well, then maybe it's because we just physically cannot do it. We're not wired that way. We're not made to do it. So I think that it's a little tricky and and tough to think of it that way. So I'd argue that code is independent of who we are. And I think that it's just an output. It's It's something that we produce. And if we try harder, we can produce better and cooler things. That's interesting. And I, and I like your answer and give it's giving me more to, to ponder. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I'm going to have to crunch on that one for a while because at the same time that you don't want to be ego invested in the code you produce, you know, if your code is doing something wrong, that's not because you're a bad person. It's also important to have an internal locus of control and say, I have the you know ability to, to make these cha- change this, to do the right thing. You know, I have a lot of control over my own output and how I produce code. Uh, so I'm still, I guess, like one of the struggles of my whole career is how to balance those two things, how to feel like I have the control I need to do the work while not being so ego invested that if there's a bug that I ship to production that I feel bad about it for a week. Well, I think that control actually um, supports the position that code is just output, right? Because if I work harder, I will produce better things. If I, you know, follow the recipe and really have an understanding of the ingredients, my dish will be better, right? So there's like a very direct correlation between how much effort I put in and what uh, what I get on the other side of it. So I think that um, the more we can emotionally distance ourselves from our code, I think the more control we can actually exert on it because I can say I'm going to increase my uh, my input and I'm going to get, you know, a better output. It strikes a chord with me in the sense that because I have, I think I have an aversion to the word like output and production and optimization only because mm-hmm. we are humans, right? I mean, there's machines for that. Literally, we can build AI and bots. And the beauty of machine learning these days is that it can help us be better. We as humans don't necessarily need to push ourselves to that brink because that's the point of having augmentation and technology to do that for us. So that's why, I, you know, I'm just curious if we think of it in that way and we think about code or, um, and, and you say it's an output, is code also, though, a, a language that we as a community, that those who are coding in that spoken language or that type language, is that something that will remain forever or does it change with the times? Like literally like, like the lexicon. Yeah. Okay. Th- that's a really good question. I love that question because I think that it can be a form of expression as well. Like, I don't think those two things are independent, right? So, if I think if you ask a chef, you know, how they think about food, that's probably different than if you ask like an average person who maybe like 
frankly, doesn't really care about food, right? Like they, right. they both got to eat. <laughs> both people, they both got to eat. They both got to, you know, figure out how to feed themselves. But if you ask a chef, it probably is about expression. It probably is about the creativity and them putting, I mean, I like love master chefs so much. I'm also very hungry, which is why I keep talking about food. Um, <laughs> but you know, they're always talking about like, Oh, like you put yourself on the plate. Right. And they, they tell these stories of like their families and their, you know, what it was like to grow up in their mom's kitchen. And they, they tell these beautiful stories and they're able to lay it out through a dish. So I think there's definitely room for that um, human expression for things to be artistic, but there's also room for it to just be a sandwich. And there's also room for it to just be, you know, like it's just bread, it's got some meat in it, and I'm hungry and I got to eat it. And that's totally okay too. So I think like, but well, like most things, I think code is just a tool. And if you want to use it as a tool for expression, you can totally do that power to you. And if you just want to use it a tool as a tool to get something done, power to you as well. That's a powerful st- a statement. Mm-hmm. So I love that. Thank you. That is very similar to the way I've been thinking about it, which is that the code is just an artifact of this bigger process. Yes. That process is the thing that's creative. And the code is just a thing that happens. It's it's a, really a, a side effect of that process. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. And actually that's what makes it hard to read old code and understand it because the code is really just a fraction of everything, of all the information that went into producing the code, the code only shows you a small fraction of, of what the person, what the people mm-hmm. were thinking, what their context was, what they knew at the yeah. time, what their goals were. All of that stuff, the code is contingent on all of that. So mm-hmm, it's in this mm-hmm. in, encoded message about what was happening when it was created. I love that. I've never thought of code that way before as kind of this or, or why it's frustrating to go back to old code because you're right. I'm trying to figure out not just what is the code saying, but what was I saying? What was I thinking at that moment? What was I dealing with? What problem was I solving? What what state of mind was I in? And it's hard to figure a lot of that context out just by looking at the code. And you know, frankly, as you get better with coding, I think that you're better at leaving those clues and that documentation behind. But yeah, you're trying to it's it's a piece of a larger puzzle puzzle that you're trying to figure out. Yeah, it's like looking at pottery shards and then going, okay, was this an agricultural society? What yeah. what did they eat, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to talk a little bit more about lexicon. And when you're having these conversations about helping someone out with a problem, mm-hmm. what are some of the words you use to communicate in your community that have become kind of shared language? Because a lot of this stuff is in wordless space, right? What is some of the lexicon you see sort of developing around these things? I think that one of the things that comes up a lot is that we use we. So no matter kind of what the situation is, it's always a we. Like it's never a you, it's never a me, it's a we. And so I think that it is really um, one of the the practices that have come up. I think maybe, I don't know if it's intentional. I think on my end, it's intentional. I don't know if the community is intentional, but we'll say like, oh, like let's figure this out together what should we do? Or here's something that we think, you're just kind of making sure that there's no separation, there's no divide between you and me, that we're in this together and we're on the same team. I think it's something that's really super important. Another thing that's really important is just this idea that we are moving through this journey together. And so we need to show kindness and we're always talking about kindness. So we use the word love a lot. Uh, We use the word support a lot. We ask a lot of questions 
there's a lot of prefacing and you know i think that specifically you know women get um reprimanded a lot for like being too apologetic and being too uh you know we preface things too much i think that's absolute bullcrap i think everyone should be more apologetic i think everyone should preface things more um i think it is perfectly fine for me to go hey you know i don't mean to you know i don't mean i don't want you to take it this way but you know here's what i was thinking or like hey you know i might be new at this but here's you know here are my thoughts like i think it is perfectly reasonable i think that is an excellent way to communicate and i think that our community definitely takes advantage of that i think that we're very good at saying you know i was thinking about this a different way let me know how you feel but here's how i feel and all that's doing is just saying hey i have an opinion but my opinion might be different from yours, and I'm respecting that difference. I'm respecting the potential difference that we may have in that um, in that idea. And I think that is absolutely a good thing, and I think that our community practices that a lot. So there's a linguistic concept called mitigated speech, uh, which mm. is, I think, what you're describing where you might say, we're going to do X uh, as yeah. a command. But then if you – one level of mitigation might be, we should try to do X. Yes. And then the next level of mitigation is, why don't we try to do X? Mm-hmm, and then the next level mm-hmm. of mitigation is, do you think X would be useful in this situation? And then the next level of mitigation is, out of these alternatives, which one do you like the most? And what do mm-hmm. you think about X? And then the next one is, I wonder if there's a problem that we should try to solve here, and so on. And so, like, the goal for me is, there's a study about mitigated language and its impact on incident response. So, like, mm-hmm. planes that crashed because the co-pilot was culturally unable to give the pilot the information they needed without mitigating their speech. So rather than saying, we're going to crash into that mountain, they would say, hey, it's good to look at our radar, isn't it? You know? (laughs) And so for me, it's about finding a balance. It's about mitigation is useful because it acknowledges that I'm not the only one that matters in the conversation, right? Yes. And so for me, it's about finding the level of mitigation where I'm not subjecting myself and I'm not dominating the other person where we can be equal. Yeah. I love that. I've never heard of that before, but I'm going to use that for now on mitigated language. Is that what you called it? Yeah. Mitigated speech, mitigated language. Mitigated speech. I love that so much. Yeah. I think that is a huge, I think that's so important, especially when you're communicating via Twitter, via any type of text. It is so hard to figure out what the intent of someone's words are and, you know, how they're feeling. And, and, you know, frankly, um, someone was talking, I was talking to a friend of mine, um, Adrian Lowe, who's an amazing coder, amazing engineering manager. And she was telling me about how when you work with someone, especially when you work with someone you don't know very well, you have to build up your trust bank and you start with an empty vault, right? You, you start with just no trust at all. And I don't know you, you don't know me. And frankly, there's a huge chance that if you say something even slightly the wrong way, I'm going to take it the wrong way. I'm going to take it all the way to the worst way that I can take it. And, you know, that trust that I build with you happens over time where eventually we have a shorthand. Eventually we have an understanding where if you say this, I know you really meant to say this other thing, but when you're talking to strangers online, you don't have any type of trust. You have no trust bank. Your trust bank is at zero. And so at that point, mitigated language, I think, comes really, really in handy because it helps to solve for the fact that we don't know each other and we don't trust each other yet. And hopefully you might end up building that trust and getting to know people online as well. The other interesting thing is that it's a tool for navigating power dynamics. So yeah. you'll, you'll yeah, often yeah. Yep, find yep, yep. that people on the the bottom end of a power dynamic, they mitigate their speech more mm, is one factor. Yeah. But they also, when the person on who has more power says something, they'll bump it up the mitigation ladder. If mm. your boss who pay, signs your paycheck says, hey, uh, I think you should do X, that is a command, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And so one thing I think about when I am a senior engineer and I'm mentoring a pairing with a junior engineer, I think about how much I need to mitigate my speech. 
so that mm-hmm. it actually hits at the right level. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. For the way that they're perceiving the power dynamic. Yeah. Love that. I think that's, you know, a, a really important point to kind of talk about a little bit because I think as we, as I'm thinking about diversity and inclusion, <clears throat> this is often the point I'm trying to make with, with folks. So we need to be designing universally and thinking about how we can basically centralize or decentralize the power, basically, right? How we can make sure that everyone has a voice and space to speak their their voice when they're ready. I'm just curious because I am not a technologist. I am not a coder mm-hmm. or a developer of any sorts, right? I'm just here sort of to question and to um, ask these questions in a way that would provoke more of us to 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 get involved in the conversation because this technology is going to impact all of us. Once you are in a position of power like you, Saran, you you have this responsibility. Do you feel like this is on your shoulders to get this right and that, that, that this is going to go down in history and that if you walk away from this, somebody could come in and, and see kind of like the community that you built and maybe looking at the language, the coding language uh, or the lexicon that has come from this community. Does that ever cross your mind? No, not really. I don't think that. I think that what we do is important, but I also think that I can't look at this and go like, I did this. Do you know what I mean? I think I look at this and go, I created a room where cool things can happen and magical things can happen. So like I have a talk called the magical living room where I talk about how um, I learned a lot of my community building skills from my mom who, you know, we're a community of Ethiopian immigrants and we, you know, don't always feel like we belong and we don't always feel like we have a place um, specifically in the U S and we don't have a place that, you know, um, really understands us and that wants us frankly, and that keeps us safe. And she did an amazing job growing up of always creating this safe haven in her living room. And she was always, um, you know, making sure that people felt taken care of, people felt really at home. And so um, I kind of look at what I do as doing that, but online, I look at it as like, I'm trying to create a magical living room for people to come and like hang out and do what they do best. And so I can't really take credit for the actions that happen. I take credit for, you know, making sure the sofa's clean and, you know, tidying up the space and making sure there's, you know, good food served. But the real magic comes from the community members who are there, who want to talk, want to connect and who really take that responsibility seriously. Mm. And that goes back to that question I was asking, is it, is it, is what we're building a, an extension of who we are, right? Is because culturally mm. that, Im- yep. that influenced you and in how you set up the space. Absolutely. Right. Yep, absolutely. Um, and that's like the unspoken language of, that's, that's getting encoded here. Yep, absolutely. Right. Okay. Well, I think this also goes back to your your superpower. You talked about being an outsider and having this experience of feeling like an outsider your whole life and the pain and the suffering that comes with that experience. And then when you were in a position of privilege in your life to be able to build a magical living room and your superpower of being able to see this need, see all these people that needed that kind of safety space because you experienced the pain of that yourself. You went, I'm going to create a magical living room and instantiate it into the world. And you saw the needs. Mm-hmm. So much power in that. You saw the needs and you created a gravity. You created a pattern. You created a template of this room. And right now, your job is to kick back and feed and nurture this space that you've created, this room that you've created. And so, yeah, your role kind of shifts gears. Do I need to make sure the sofa's clean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're continually creating 
a space and nurturing and protecting and guarding and standing up for the meaning of this space by seeing the needs and helping everyone else to see that need too. I mean, I, I, I think you're giving other people your eyes of that particular need through your work. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that, you know, the living room has to stay clean, right? You can't just clean it once and then walk away and then, you know, assume that everything's going to be fine. I think you have to keep serving people food or you got to keep making sure that all the surfaces are wiped off. And, you know, it definitely is a lot of like maintenance that needs to happen, a lot of nurturing that needs to happen. And um, yeah, that's where I spend a bulk of my time. So at this point in the show, we usually go into reflections. And each one of us will wrap up with any final thoughts topics that stood out to us, things that we saw, connections that we made, things we're going to take away from this. One of the things that's kind of stood out to me and that I'll definitely be, well, if there's, no, there's not one, there's two. Everyone is a newbie. I love that, um, that you all have something to learn all the time. And, and then going back to this um, kind of concept of making sure that you have this living room that's welcoming, inviting, and that you're constantly thinking about how you're going to keep it uh, as such once you once you make it a welcoming place. And I would say that you're you're on your way to building a house or <laughs> a little neighborhood, um, not just a living room. So I think that's pretty neat, and and I like it. So one of the things that really struck a chord with me is how much ego investment in our work is appropriate. And mm. I've been struggling with this for my whole career, and I've come up with different answers at different times. I used to think it was zero. Uh, I used to think that any ego investment meant that we – would be irrational when our work was criticized or in whatnot and things. And I'm starting to think that it's more than zero and that the, the real challenge is being involved in our work in a way that is healthy. And when someone criticizes your work, realizing that it is in some sense a criticism of yourself, but that that's okay. That people can criticize you and you don't have to feel bad. And so I like being proud of the things that I do. Even though code, mm -hmm. the code that I write is a small part of everything that I do for my job, I still want to be proud of the code that I write. But I still also mm – -hmm. and I want to take in criticism and become better. But I want to do that in a way that's healthy for me, in a way where I can look at the criticism and take in the parts of it that I understand and agree with and shed, reject, just let the parts that I don't like pass me by. And that's mm -hmm. that's really the challenge for me is to not – I think that being completely not invested in your work is a way to avoid that harder problem, but that, that, that harder problem is worthwhile. That harder challenge is worthwhile to take on. Mm. So I've been thinking about just these connections from the last show we had with Halima Nash, and she talked a lot about intentionality. And in this call, we talked about intentional learning and all the things that means. What we ended up coming to was creating this magical living room space, creating a home tree of gravity for what that means, modeling that behavior, attracting people that want to believe in and live and embody this set of values. And then you kind of grow that little ball of gravity, you grow that magical living room, that space, and then you kick back, let the community, let the gravity that you've created kind of take on a life of its own and you kick back and you keep the sofas clean. Nurturing mm, mm, mm. the space. You keep doing the everyday growing of tomatoes that needs to get done to keep that living room a magical space. And I think that's sort of what we need to shift to is this 
model of intentionality of building the room is also about taking that gift and giving it away is letting it be the we. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Beautiful. I love that. Yeah. So for me, I think what I'm walking away with is the mitigation speech. I absolutely love that. I've never heard of that term before. Um, or that way of thinking. I've always felt like there, you know, I, I have this general idea of prefacing and I have this general idea of, you know, there are different ways of saying the same thing that don't feel as harsh or as abrasive, but I never had the words or the, the language to um, to describe it. And now I do. So I think that the mitigation speech is probably the thing I'm walking away with today. So the term mitigated speech came from Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. Oh, neat. I think he's somewhat problematic, but what he did there is he took work that had been done in the in the field and then just gave it an, a, a catchy name. Mm, and so you can okay. go find the original research. Um, there's a paper called "Cultural Diversity and Crew Communication" that a lot mm -hmm. of this came from. But you can go you can go find that stuff, and you don't have to take Malcolm's word for it. Okay, <laughs> cool. Well, Saran, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. 